Good morning. So a lifetime ago, or so it seems, I served as a youth pastor in a small town just outside of Liverpool, England, which is, is of course, the home of the Beatles and also the greatest soccer team the world has ever known. Now, one of my tasks as a young, inexperienced youth pastor, uh, fresh out of college, was to lead Bible studies with small groups of high school students. And in one such group was a girl called Laura. She was a bright and extremely funny, quick-witted teenager. Someone who could have the room in stitches with her impressions, her jokes, and her infectious laughter. You probably all have known people like this in your life. The interesting thing about Laura, though, was that unlike most, almost every other student in these groups, she wasn't a believer. In fact, she was quite clear that she wasn't interested in becoming one. She just showed up because her friends were there. And so week in and week out, she'd come and she'd sit through the Bible study and show no interest in following Jesus. And she was, like most people in the United Kingdom, I'm afraid, she was a skeptic. And she was very wary of people trying to convince her of the truth of the gospel. Well, after two years of coming to these groups, in her summer between high school and college, her friends convinced her that she should come with them to an event called Soul Survivor. And it's a big, week-long Christian event for high school and college-age students that our church youth group would attend each and every summer. And there'd be about 5,000 other students at this event. It was big, and then they would have another week like that and another week like that, with incredible worship music that was led by people such as Matt Redman, some of whose songs we sing here uh, each week. There would be incredible preaching by a person called Louis Giglio out of Passion Church in Atlanta. And all in all, it was a powerful gospel-focused event. And Laura's friends told me, and they even told Laura, that there was no way that Laura could go to this event and not come back as a Christian. Well, Laura went, she experienced this incredible week, and proudly returned a non-believer. And it seemed that we would lose Laura to college before she ever became a Christian. However, God had other plans. You see, a few weeks later, at a small event in our just little old parish hall, Laura gave her life to Jesus. And I can still picture in my mind's eye Laura sitting there on one of those cheap orange plastic chairs, surrounded by her friends, and they were crying and laughing together as they gave thanks for this timely miracle that had just occurred right before she graduated our youth group and was heading off to college. And it really was timely. You see, Laura grew in her faith that first year at college. And when she returned the next summer, it was great to see this once resistant young woman so open to the work of Jesus in her life. And then she returned to college for a second year. And it wasn't long before I got a heart-wrenching phone call. Laura had died in her sleep in a college dorm. The autopsy discovered that she had a rare lung condition that no one could have known about or suspected, at least not in a healthy 19-year-old girl. And it was tragic. And the funeral, which was held in our church back where she had grown up in the town she'd grown up in, was difficult. And lots of tears were shed by our church family at that service. But it was nowhere near as tragic as it would have been if Laura had not known the Lord. 
nowhere near. If on a regular Sunday evening in our little old parish hall, Laura had not given her life to Jesus, surrounded by her friends. And this gave great peace to everyone, including her family, who were also non-believers, but themselves who came to faith through this painful event. Now, why do I share this with you today? Well, it's because we're going to talk about the importance of sharing the gospel. And I don't want us to underestimate that, both publicly and personally. We've come to another great character in our Outward Bound Summer Sermon Series. We've looked at Peter, we've looked at Stephen, and now we've come to a guy called Philip. And this series is one studying the Acts of the Apostles, or what might better be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And this character, Philip, is a man who later in Acts will become known as Philip the Evangelist. That's his nickname, if you will, Philip the Evangelist. A man who is willing to share the good news of Jesus with anyone and everyone that he encounters. As I shared at the beginning of the series, uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said this, the church is one of those rare organizations in the world that exists primarily for those who are not yet members. The church, our family here, is really not about us in many ways. It's about all the people who are not here today, who are out there on Daniel Island, East Cooper, wherever it might be, beyond. We are one of those weird organizations that exists, we gather, so that we go out and draw those folks in. And while many of us may not go to the ends of the earth, we are all called to go to others with the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in today's reading, we're given a great example of the two primary ways we're to go about this. There's the public form of evangelism, and then there's the private form of evangelism. And while the context of sharing the gospel may change, the content never does. And for Laura, public evangelism wasn't the way that she was going to be saved, at least not in the Billy Graham Crusades style of evangelism. It was through the faithful, more private witness of her friends that she came to faith. So let's turn to our reading for today and see what God would say to each one of us. You can either follow along on the screens as Barry scrolls through for us, or you can use the uh, bulletin that you were given on the way in. Or if you have a Bible with you, please pull that out. So the context of our passage for today is that the Christians in Jerusalem have been driven out by persecution. We see this from verse 1. In fact, we have an overlap with last week's reading where we saw Stephen being stoned. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Remember, Saul is the one who will become the Apostle Paul. He's the great persecutor, but one day he will be the great bringer of the gospel to the Gentiles. And while persecution isn't good and doesn't always lead to church growth, it often does. Okay, and that, why is that? Well, let's read on. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered, notice that word, went about preaching the word. Without persecution, it's unlikely that those early disciples would have been so quick to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel as boldly as they did. As Kent Hughes writes, amidst the horrors of the waves of persecution against Christ's followers, two especially wonderful things took place. 
the gospel invaded Samaria, thus fulfilling the second step in Christ's blueprint, and it went out with amazing spiritual power, just as Christ also had promised. Persecution often leads to rapid growth in the church because it sharpens the minds of Christians and gives them an urgency and boldness that wouldn't otherwise be there. If you want to see the church growing in America, you might want to risk praying, Lord, bring us persecution. It will probably grow, friends. It will probably grow. Which leads us to Philip and two stories about two different ways of doing evangelism, public and private, or perhaps you would call it personal. So let's look at those more in depth. Number one, public evangelism. Look at verses 5 and 6. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Philip, who, like Stephen, is one of the seven that were chosen to help the Greek widows. Remember, you might remember that from last week. He leaves Jerusalem in this persecution, and he heads north to Samaria. Okay? And in doing that, and in what follows, we see a pretty simple pattern emerge to both his public and his private evangelism. Let's look at that pattern in the public form first. Number one, Philip is obedient to God's leading. He's obedient to God's leading. Now, what do I mean? It's it's hard to explicitly see that obedience right here. But where does Philip head to when he's forced out of Jerusalem? Where does he go? Samaria. And where does Jesus tell his disciples to go once they're filled with the power of the Spirit? Yeah, Judea, Samaria, and the Ents. You notice that? Look at the story of the ascension that we covered weeks ago, Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth and then he's lifted up out of their sight see Philip is obeying Christ's earlier command to take the gospel outward beginning with Samaria not necessarily an easy option as the people of Samaria and the Jews didn't get along very well but he still obeys think about Jesus when he shares that parable of the good Samaritan he uses someone from Samaria who was seen as really an enemy of the Jews to rescue someone who is Jewish the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along well you see God's leading will not always be easy when it comes to evangelism. It won't always make you popular. The second thing is, besides obeying God, he proclaims Christ in his words. How do we know this? Well, it's in the text. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Notice he doesn't proclaim himself. He doesn't proclaim some new self-help techniques that he's come up with, which may be tempting given the results that he's just seen for Stephen and various other disciples when they share the gospel. Now, just like Stephen and those other disciples, he tells them about Jesus. He tells them about his life, his death, his resurrection. And this is enough to make them listen. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. 
think sometimes we believe that in order to share the gospel with others, we have to have a compelling personal story about a near-death experience, a drug addiction we've overcome, a terrible family crisis we've gone through. But actually, all we need to do is to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Christ and who he is. You see, as the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he follows God's leading. He proclaims Christ, not himself, and he does it in the power of the Spirit. See, it's really clear that the power of the Spirit is working through him. Verses 6 and 7. They, that's the people in Samaria, saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip's not trying to do this in his own strength. He's not foolish like that. He is filled with the power of the Spirit. And that same Spirit is giving him the words to speak as Jesus promised to his disciples the Spirit would do. And he's empowering him to bring healing and freedom to those he speaks to, as Jesus did. For evangelism to be effective and lasting, it must be done in the power of the Spirit, not simply the persuasive words of some great orator. doesn't work. Well, moving to our second story, we see that while the context of evangelism is different, it's private or personal, not public, we see a similar pattern occurring. Number one, Philip's obedient to God's leading. Not knowing why he should go there, Philip hears God's voice tell him to go to a desert place. Strange command, right? And he still does it. And there he comes across a foreigner, perhaps someone from a nation he'd never met before. As Luke tells us in verse 27, he's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. It seems that this important and influential man is Jewish. He's traveled to Jerusalem for a festival or maybe for a pilgrimage, and now he's returning home. And he's reading from the book of Isaiah. He's got a scroll. He's in his chariot. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And this particular prophecy has caught his eye. And again, Philip obeys the Lord when the Holy Spirit tells him to go over to the chariot. Now things are starting to become a little clearer for Philip because he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading from the scriptures that he also knows. He's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. He will have heard it before. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And then Philip's given what? really every Christian hopes for. It's an evangelistic softball, okay? The guy basically asks him to tell him about Jesus. Now, it's as if you're at school or you're at work and someone leans over and says, hey, I don't know if you've heard of this thing, but I've been reading this thing called the Bible, right? And I just can't quite understand who this Jesus guy is. Can you help me out? To which the response should outwardly be, yeah, sure thing. And inwardly, hallelujah, <laughs> I've been waiting for you to ask me, right? Praise God. And what's Philip's response? Well, that brings us back to the pattern we're seeing emerge. Remember, he's been led by God and obeyed him. 
And then secondly, he proclaims Christ in his words. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He shares about who Jesus is from the scriptures. In other words, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Don't discount the Old Testament. Remember, these are the only scriptures they have at this stage, and they are still equally as important for us today. They proclaim Christ to us. Hopefully, after our last year of doing the His story, you realize that. And once again, Philip sticks with Jesus, right? Jesus is enough, friends. If there's one thing that gets through tonight, sharing Jesus is enough. Tell people about who Jesus is. And how do we know it is in this case? Well, look at the response of the eunuch, verses 36 and 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So he's heard who Jesus is. He's accepted that he's the Messiah. He's repented, believed in him. And he's heard Philip, I'm sure, share that, well, the next thing that people do once they've done that is they get baptized. They go get baptized. And so there just happens to be a body of water right by them. And so he says, well, let's do it. And this private encounter rightly leads to a more public expression of his newfound faith through baptism. In a few weeks' time, we'll do something very similar when we baptize a bunch of folks down at the beach on Solomon's Island. If you've never been baptized, but what you're hearing today is making sense and you want to follow Jesus, then let's get you baptized as well down there. So he's obeyed God again. He's proclaimed Christ. And then thirdly, the last thing which we saw in the public one happens in the private. Philip does it all in the power of the Spirit. You see, the power of God is clearly at work in Philip. And again, it's not quite so explicit perhaps, but we see it because he disappears right before the eyes of the Ethiopian. Verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. As we discover here in a moment that seems more like Star Trek than anything else, sort of beam me up Scotty, right? Philip is immediately transported to Azotus. Uh, and we see that the God who, that we serve and that Philip is serving can do incredible things. We see it over and over again. And what does Philip do next? Well, if you read on, you'll see that he keeps proclaiming the gospel. Of course, that's what he does. Well, having heard all of this, as we come into land, as we come to a close, I want to ask you a pretty simple question. How did you come to know Jesus? If you would say you know him, how did you come to know Jesus? Think about that for a moment. How did you come to know him? I'm guessing it was either in a more public or a more private setting. It really had to be one or the other. Perhaps it was in a church service or a youth group meeting. Or maybe it was in a large evangelistic rally or a summer camp, somewhere more public. Or maybe for you it was perhaps more at home um, through a parent or a grandparent who believed. Or at work through a colleague or a boss who was someone you saw something different in and they shared their faith with you. But you see, somebody revealed to you who Jesus is by being obedient to making disciples and by sharing who Jesus is in the power of the Spirit. Somebody did that. 
What a wonderful gift they gave to you. The best gift that could ever be given to you. Don't take your salvation for granted. You know, tomorrow we will celebrate Independence Day, right? And uh, we'll have a grand time remembering and hopefully not taking for granted the freedom that we have. That has been won for us by many people who've given their life for us over the years. But even more importantly... Don't take for granted the salvation that you have been given, the freedom in Christ Jesus because of the fact that he has shared um, the gospel with you and you've responded through someone else. The knowledge that there's a God who created us and loves us and who revealed his love by sending his one and only son to become one of us, to live and to die for us. And to rise again that we might be forgiven of our sin and one day rise again with him. This is the gospel. As we saw in our story today, it brings great joy to those who receive it. It's not something to be ashamed of, but rather to celebrate. As the Apostle Paul writes again in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the gospel, is the very power of God to transform broken lives. Broken lives. The gospel is life to a dying world and we are surrounded by people who are dying and broken, whether they're in our work places, our schools, our communities, they are all around us, lost people. And that gospel is for all people. And though the context may change, the content never does. You know, today the Lord's still looking for those who believe in him to take this message of grace, of healing and forgiveness to the world. The question is, will you be obedient to God's leading? Will you proclaim Christ with your words as revealed through the scriptures? And will you do it all in the power of the Spirit? Publicly, maybe in the workplace, or maybe in your school, perhaps through leading an Alpha course maybe, or an FCA group in your school, maybe through hosting a life group in a public space like a restaurant of some kind, and inviting people to be a part of that, whatever that might look like. Maybe privately, with your family, your kids, your spouse, your grandparents, whoever it might be, or with your friends. And if you don't have any non-Christian friends, then how will you make some? What organizations, what groups, what thing will you take up? What will you join so that you can share the gospel with non-believers? Or maybe are you ready to share with strangers, people that you meet in the park perhaps, or at the pool, maybe at the gym, in a restaurant, at the golf club, wherever that might be. Are you ready to share with them the gospel? This is our calling. It's God's call to Philip and it's still God's call to those who would call themselves Christians. To obediently take Christ to the world in the power of the Spirit, in order that people like those in Samaria, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, and people like my student, Laura, will be saved from sin and death and live forever with Jesus. And some will respond better in a more public setting, and some will respond better in a more private setting. But either way, who is God calling you to take the gospel to today? Let's pray. I just want you to ask the Lord right now to reveal to you one person or one group of people that he might be um, wanting you to share the gospel with. Someone you know is lost, who needs him, or some group. Just ask him to fill you with his spirit and to lead you and for you to be obedient.
Lord God, you say the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And too often I'm embarrassed to admit that I miss the opportunities that you give me to share the gospel. Too often I'm ashamed of the gospel when there's nothing to be ashamed about. Lord, I pray for each one of us to have a boldness to hold out the word of life to a lost and dying people who are heading to their own destruction, Lord Jesus, if they don't turn to you. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to be uh, boldly proclaiming uh, Jesus to others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.